If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we'll break down the Diana Chronicles, Tina Brown's biography of the late Princess Di with Amanda Dobbins of The Ringer, because she made the mistake of saying publicly she'd talk about it with anyone and I found her email. And we'll go deep on Pittsburgh Steelers running back Le'Veon Bell, who is brilliantly proving that all contract negotiations should be conducted via rap beefs. I am your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And with me in the room this week is every single member of the Just Not Sports crew. Kicking it. Le'Veon Bell's Jackie Chan style oh in a hotel room <laughs> in New York. So here we go. It's a home jo- game for me. It is a home game for Gareth. Joining me, the let's switch it up. Let's start right there with the home team. Gareth, our Emmy-winning sports producer out of our Brooklyn bureau. How does it feel to be in Manhattan? Does it still count as a as a home game for you? Oh yeah, I mean, I can if I can ride my bike there. It's a home game. <laughs> so Newark, right? Is still part of uh, still part of your purview? Yeah, I could get. I, could you ride your bike to Newark? I rode to the Mets game a couple times recently, which oh. was thirteen miles. All right, jeez, the city is great. That's so, impressive. The city's good to ride a bike in. There's not the only hills really. There's a couple up near Harlem and Northern Manhattan, but mostly it's the bridges. The bridges are the biggest hills you run into. All right, and with that, let's introduce. Our fresh-faced media expert. Whoa, hold on a second. Wasn't he supposed yeah, to intro Adam's gonna you do, this week? Adam's going to oh. do the intro. Why are you introing me? I, I said I was going to do that, but I'm not prepared. Because Brad's only a sports marketer. Oh, <laughs> I was going to come up with an intro for you next time. I need that's going to take that's a week project. All right, we'll think of something. <laughs> All right. Well, joining me on the couch this week on a on a hotel room couch is the fresh-faced sports media strategist who has logged time. For the University of Colorado and the Green Bay Packers and many global sports brands, Mr. Adam Millard. Adam, you are already looking fly, ready to suited, go out of the town. Suited and booted. <laughs> suited and booted. Like primetime. <laughs> oh, primetime. We're going to break down primetime next week. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Mr. Joe Reed. Joe, what do you have to say for yourself this week? Life's good, Brad. Life is good. He found a mic. All four he of us found. have mics. We've made it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on this show, you know, we don't just invite people on. We go public. We slam the hammer on them uh, because they have talked about something they like openly and publicly. Very much reminiscent of Amanda Dobbins talking about uh, Princess Die and us just, you know, stalking her down. So right now we're going to slam the hammer on a few unsuspecting souls who need to come on our show and talk about shit they do. So, Adam, let me start with you. So I teased this to Joe earlier, and he had he wasn't sure what I was talking about. I'll give you guys a couple guesses. I think this person may be one of the top three or four biggest gets in sports right now. Um, they're not a current athlete. Dana Barrows? No, but they are related <laughs> To something that happened or recently, that you said recently something in the news recently. So the five-part OJ doc that mm. aired, uh, there are a cast of characters, but the one person who seems to have disappeared, Al Cowlings. 
<laughs> they yeah. couldn't get him on camera for interview. Um, it's interesting because, as we all know, Al drove the Bronco in that famous highway chase. Um, he was OJ's supporter through the trial. First one to greet him after the trial. Spoke at Nicole's funeral, though. Spoke at Nicole's funeral. Right. Um, and has since disappeared, but there are some odd stories that have popped up about him talking about how he, how OJ apparently confessed to him at some point. Uh, he told this to a porn star who was trying to rep- to impress, <laughs> and he apparently told this story to Keith Richards. He was trying to get backstage at a show and kept spouting off about details about the case. So this I don't even necessarily want to talk to him. I mean, I do want to talk to him about the case. <laughs> I just want to know where is he. How do you disappear? Because we've all had yeah, fantasies of disappearing, and he's gone. It's, yeah. it's crazy. I think it'd be safe to say the ultimate Just Not Sports interview would be an interview with OJ or Al Cowlings where the, the murder stuff never comes up. Right. <laughs> where we're like, hey, <laughs> talk to you about memorabilia. Exactly. That's <laughs> he's really into scandal. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's break down the show. Yes. Uh, Al Cowlings, how is wherever you are right, <laughs> right. now? All right, well, let's, go, let's go Joe Reed right now. Uh, Joe, who do you want to send the hammer to? Speaking of criminal activity and uh, famous football players, I'm going to invite Dan Marino on because ah. he was kidnapped. I don't know if you guys knew this. Huh? In the uh, major motion picture, Ace Ventura. <laughs> Pet Detective. Pet, Pet Detective. It was one of my favorite movies growing up, and uh, I just want to talk to him about it. So there one you go. One of my favorite movies growing up. Laces really out, man. 40-year-old millennial. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Reed, the 40-year-old millennial. That's going to stick. <laughs> yeah, that could be my new intro. All right. It, yeah, I don't think that movie's aged well. We should have to. We should do a segment on, on Marino there. Because he's kind of like the precursor to the... When you think about the 90s cameos, you always think Favre in Something About Mary. But Dan Marino was like a vital part of that plot. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Laces Out has really become part of the cultural lexicon of football, too. <laughs> like, I think that has become more of a quotable lexicon meme type thing more than anything from any line from Something About Mary. From Something About Mary, it's just the the the, 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 come here. the bangs. With yeah. The yeah, right. Yeah, so it's more of a visual joke there as opposed to a Brett Favre thing. So. <laughs> well, Gareth, who do you want to slam the hammer to? Um... I have to like on a more serious topic. Uh, there were two black men murdered by police yesterday yeah. in this country, and uh, as we were looking at the Just on Sports Twitter feed, one name that really impressed me was Jalen Strong, wide receiver of the Houston Texans. Who look, there were a lot of athletes coming out, and I don't know. Look, we're taping this in New York. This is where I live. This is among the most diverse cities in America, if not the world. And I, my wife and I watch the news every morning and we had to turn it off this morning because watching the footage of those two shootings was appalling and it made us want to vomit. And I took my son, who's 18 months, grocery shopping this morning. I couldn't help but look at him and think to myself, if you were black Statistically speaking, the odds are much greater that you would be killed by a police officer. That is a fact. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I really admire any athlete who will use athletics as a platform to raise awareness of these things. It's frankly, it's the backbone of this show. We've talked a lot about Muhammad Ali and how much we admired him. It's all part of the same thing. And I was really impressed with Jalen Strong of the Houston Texans yesterday 
for coming out so strongly on his Twitter feed uh, to say that this is an injustice and it needs to stop. And when people, somebody shot back at him that, hey, keep quiet. We don't need this out of you. Stay in your lane. Stick to sports. Uh. All I want from you is to catch balls. And he was just, no, but that's not me as a man. That's not who I am. And it, look, we see examples of that every day. I was just, his came at me really strongly. I was really impressed by it. Also, the guys from Philly, and he loves cheesesteaks. So Jalen Strong, I would like to talk to you about the way you've used your platform and standing up for what you think is right. And I would like to do it over a cheesesteak because I'm a provolone guy. I don't know if you're a whiz, provolone guy, anything like that. But it doesn't all have to be serious because we like to have some fun here too. But I was impressed by, I don't know, but I was impressed by the way he used his platform yesterday. So Jalen Strong is my handle. So, Adam, do you, as a member of the black community, do you do you feel like pressure is intensifying on players to step forward? Um, celebrities have, you know, I don't know. We're in the wake of like Jesse Williams is just tremendous speech at the BET Awards and I'm just wondering like are we going to see do you think we're going to see a lot more athletes come to come forward and become part of more, a little bit more part of like a coordinated movement for African American rights or no? Uh, no, I, I don't think we will because there's too much money at stake for them. They yeah. don't mm-hmm. uh, I think there's too much fear on the part of a lot of black athletes as being seen as an angry black man. Do you know that there was a huge uh, petition put around by Grey's yeah, Anatomy to fans fire to fire but him from the show? Petition for everything. Yeah, like right. if I if I went on yeah, the street, but just and the fact that there's a vocal the outcry. Petition, like, but I mean, I I think these guys, you know, I might scare away Pepsi if I right if I say the wrong thing in the wrong way that makes me look like the angry black man. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wish that they would. The uh, w- what I don't like is the uh passive protests where guys make a fashion statement by wearing i an i can't breathe t-shirt and pre-game warm-ups i mean on the one hand i would say i'm glad that you would that you would say something about this but then in post-game interviews they don't want to get into it right, so right. it's it's a, a, a it's it's sticky for me can i ask you a question did you have a conversation with your dad at any point in your life about how to deal with police yeah it, well, most of those conversations come too late. Um, mm-hmm. So my dad um, grew up in Mississippi. And my dad was born in uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, grew up in Florida. I mean, my dad grew up in a time where he had to go to the back. of. He remember as a kid, go to, sure, here's yeah. your food order. Go to the back of the restaurant. That was a way yeah. of life. As he got older um, and tried to get apartments, and they mm-hmm. would say, no, you can't have this apartment. Well, why? My credit's good. Uh, so he faced this discrimination. There wasn't necessarily anything about police. So my dad was a car dealer. Okay. Um, I was driving one of, he, he sold cars. Uh, he would buy cars from auctions as well. Yep. So I was driving a car on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. wearing a backwards baseball cap, driving the speed limit. And yeah. I got pulled over and the guy said, Oh, you have dealer plates. You can't have dealer plates on a Sunday, which <laughs> is a ridiculous right. law and i realized like it was the first time at 16 and 17 i realized i was being pulled over because i was black wearing driving a while black baseball right cap. yeah uh so that was the conversation there's like the conversation that happened where you're like oh yeah i've seen this on the movies but i live in denver colorado it doesn't right. happen here right. and i think my dad probably thought oh i've got my kids out of the I'm south not in hattiesburg, i'm not in hattiesburg mississippi so you should be right. fine but 
do those tough lessons. I mean, like a lot of things in life, sometimes you do have to learn those lessons for yourself. Well, yeah. this is why this is a just not sports topic. Like we talk about the personality of sports. Here you have some of the most high profile African American men in the world um, who are constantly in front of microphones. I do think that you. I do think if this persists, you might see the next generation of star come up and feel the need. Maybe they just will grow up in an era and a time over ten years where more of the people they where this will just be more of a public conversation and they will feel like it's their obligation. I don't know. Time will I tell. So. I hope you. I hope you're yeah. right. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. Well, I'm going to really switch gears on my hammer and talk about Kobe Bryant. <laughs> he got a car from Snoop Dogg. Um, I, I'm looking at it right now. It's a yellow. It looks to be some kind of um, you know yellow and purple convertible. On the top. It, like on the hood, there's a painting uh, that says Showtime, and it's got it's got like Magic and Michael Cooper and Kareem and Wilt and Kobe, and then also Snoop in a Lakers jersey. <laughs> he's the cl- he's the biggest on the car, and he's the closest to the trophy. And I think he's holding a wad of of dollar bills. Also, Chick Hearn on the front hood. Love that this Riley car. I, That's amazing. I, I don't know. I love this car. Desperately want a ride at it. So, Kobe, I just want to talk to you about the car. Do you want to pimp some Kobe Ink stuff? <laughs> Fair yeah, yeah. game. I'll <laughs> pimp any products. Come on the show. Anyway, we've got a. I'm going to jump right into the interview. Wait, we, George Lynch isn't on there? <laughs> yeah. I was shocked. <laughs> George Nick, Mike? Nick, Nick Van Etzel and Anthony Peeler must be on the back hood. I just don't have the visibility of it. Um, anyway, we, we have a great interview coming up with Amanda Dobbins of The Ringer. Uh, the Ringer launched a month ago. Congratulations to them. They're having a great month, definitely becoming a go-to destination in sports. Uh, Amanda brought up uh, loving uh, this one Princess Die biography. Uh, I was on the road. I read the book, got a chance to talk to her by myself. Uh, it's a long interview, but I think it's it's really a great example of um, somebody in the sports world um, being super passionate about um, about a topic and having a lot of fun. So I hope you stick around for it. We will be back right after this. Joining the show right now is Amanda Dobbins. Amanda is a writer and editor for the website The Ringer, which since launching this summer has become a go-to destination for sports, pop culture, and tech news. You may know her as I know her as the co-host of the Jam Session podcast, one of my favorites. It's on The Ringer's Channel 33 feed. And a few weeks ago, I was listening to that podcast, and I heard Amanda say that she loves The Diana Chronicles, Tina Brown's best-selling biography of Princess Diana. In fact, her exact words were, quoting her now, I really, really recommend Tina's book on Princess Diana. I've read it at least 10 times. I'm available to talk. Please ask me if you want to read it and talk about it. And so I did. (laughs) That was just, it was served up too cleanly for Just Not Sports. So uh, thank you, Amanda, for joining the show. I want to talk all about the book. I want to debate whether Princess Diana caused her own demise and spawned Kris Jenner. I want to talk about Prince, (laughs) Prince Charles's love of the missionary position and so much more. So thank you for joining us. I got to ask, I got to start, did any other national media, were they clamoring on your door uh, or knocking on your door to uh, to take you up on your offer? Well, no, I was going to say, thank you so much. You're the only person <laughs> in my life, professional or personal, who actually wants to talk to me about this book. And it really means a lot to me. So thank you for taking the challenge. No one personally, none of your Ringer colleagues were just like, oh, great, let's get a beer and like break down the Princess Diana store. No one even asked you to like give them the, you know, just sit down and like give me the spiel, huh? I think to 
to Juliet's credit, Juliet Littman is my uh, jam session co-host, uh, she has feigned interest in the book a couple times and nodded supportively. Uh, and I think like maybe one day if we had kind of a two-week break, I could get her to skim through it. Um, but yeah, no one else cares. No one cares at all. So I, this means a lot to me personally. Thank you. <laughs> well, it seems like, and, and you and Juliet talked a lot on that episode about the royals. It seems like you're fascinated in the royal family as a whole would that be fair to say or was is diana more of your more of your focus of fascination no i think as a whole is a totally fair uh, you know i'm interested in celebrities as you um as anyone who listens to jam session uh has probably picked up now uh we spend a lot of time talking about celebrities it's not like <laughs> my most intellectual pursuit, but it is um, how I spend a fair amount of my time. I read Us Weekly. I read all the cover stories. Um, I even read the Daily Mail, um, even though I should know better. Uh, and the royal family is just another example of like celebrity drama. And it is kind of celebrity drama almost like boiled down to its purest form because they don't really have jobs or anything else. Like Their job is just to be this family that you kind of watch their comings and goings. Um, so I think I am interested in the entire royal family. Princess Diana is obviously the most um, compelling and like most famous example of the last 20 or 30 years. There's a lot going on there. Um, and this, I think this book is kind of the best example. I think this is the best book about Princess Diana. Um, I think it's also a really interesting book about celebrity and how celebrity works. Um, and it was written in 2007, which is before the Kardashians, as you alluded, and <laughs> before, um, really before the internet and TMZ set off. And it's kind of eerily prescient um, in breaking down how these things work and how people become famous and kind of the industry of being famous, which I find really interesting. Um, that's my attempt to make this sound like a smart book. No, it is. Look, I, it was much, it was much better than I thought in terms of. I thought it was well written. Her style yeah. is. And I want to get a lot more into the nature of celebrity conversation in a second, but let's start with her style because I thought it it was a strange mix and it's strange in a good way of like very rich prose, but also like a really conversational style at times. Like she would finish a really rich paragraph and then just kind of like start the next one with, are you kidding? Or like, huh? And you'd be like, yeah. I feel like I'm just having a conversation with her about this. I, it, would you agree with that assessment or what is it about her writing style that would make you want to reread this book 10 times? Because... No, I completely agree with you. And I think, so Tina Brown um, was, she was the editor of Tatler, which is kind of like a society magazine in, in the UK. And that's how she got her start. But um, she was the editor of Vanity Fair for a long time. And then she was an editor of the New Yorker and she's kind of a magazine legend. And, um, she has a very particular voice and it's really engaging. And it's kind of, I think she's famous for kind of what they call the high, low um, kind of highbrow gloss on very lowbrow things like right. celebrity gossip. Uh, and she is one of the, the OGs in that front. And I think she has kind of influenced how a lot of journalists like myself think and talk. And I kind of, I certainly look up to her. Um, but yeah, I think it's really engaging and really readable, as you said. And she also does a very good job of um, of putting everything in context pretty quickly because, as I said, she worked in the society magazines for a long time, so she knows all of the ridiculous gossip about everyone and is just not ashamed to talk about it, uh, which is great. You know about the sex lives of so many weird rich people 
in England that you've never heard of before. <laughs> and which, she did, which enjoy. Right. And she did a good mix of like sort of talking to both the upstairs and downstairs crew, right? I mean, she's clearly got exactly. access. She could get really good people to open up to her, but it, it's, you know, she even said, I was watching an interview with her because I went full, I went full into this. I was like watching video interviews with her when she, when the book came out, like her and Hannah Storm talking about I really, about it. I appreciate that. <laughs> hey, no problem, no problem. I mean, so the, you know, like she talked about having 250 new interviews uh, at the time of publication with people, especially people that were just around her, chauffeurs, um, you know, former staff who probably felt like they, it was finally safe to talk about this. Uh, but how reliable do you feel like she is? Engaging, yes, for sure. But there were times when I was kind of like, okay, she's making some pretty broad assumptions here or firm assumptions here. How trustworthy do you feel like she is as an authoritative source on Diana? I mean, that's a really great question. And I, I'm I'm going to take it to the footnotes, which I would just, I apologize in, <laughs> best, but that in advance that I'm referencing this book's footnotes. But um, I think... In general, she is pretty reliable. It, and the thing about the book is that she does kind of weave anecdotes from like other magazine profiles and other sources in pretty seamlessly with her reporting. And as you're reading it all together, it just seems like she knows everything. And if you, but if you do go back to the footnotes, it's really meticulous. Um, and the, the reason I actually um, believe everything is because I, on the last rereading. I don't think that it was the part about how Prince Charles enjoys missionary, but it was someone else's. It was some <laughs> sex act. Yeah. I'm kind of like, I need to know the sourcing on this. <clears throat> um, and I flipped back to the footnotes and in the middle, it's just, it's just off the record interview is kind of what she had put down as the source for that. And I believe her Like somehow the fact that she wouldn't even name the person made me think, okay, she's like, this is actually coming from Prince Charles or someone Like this is really, she's really well connected. She has the dirt and she, and, and she's kind of in, she's in the matrix, you know? Uh, and she won't divulge it, which somehow made me, I like somehow the anonymous source. I was like, I buy it. So I think she's pretty well connected. Uh, you have really drank the Kool-Aid, my friend, because normally when people see in the footnotes, like, uh, you know, unnamed source or off the record interview, there's like skepticism. <laughs> and you're just like, Oh, know, it's off like, the record. Of course she, of course she's got this. But I feel like it, it's in the list that there are 20 super, super well-sourced things. And it's just like, well, this one is too sensitive, but it's still really important to me to give you the information. So I'm quoting an anonymous source. Yeah. I don't know. I, she knows a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, look, she's got a track. Like you said, she's not, she's not a scandal mo a monger that came out of nowhere. I mean, when you're talking about someone working for Vanity Fair, running Vanity Fair, uh, you know they have connections. Uh, I and again, I think the the prose, the style, it's super engaging. Um, for anyone listening, you can you can find the book. I got it on i iBooks. Uh, you know, you can buy it on Amazon. It's it's all over the place. Uh, the, I was gonna do the Audible podcast, but it was like thirty five bucks, and I was like, eh, I'm <laughs> um. All right, so let's talk about let's get in. Let's just get into it. Diana and the, the Diana and the role of celebrity. I was pretty shocked. To get like right from the get go, uh, the author is is going right into the role that Princess Diana's need for celebrity, especially post divorce, played in the sort of haphazard and sloppy movements of the night of her death. That that they were moving around carelessly. She's angling to be seen. She 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 you know she just needs to kind of you know she's with guys she probably shouldn't be with. She's not 
um, really thinking about her circumstance. And this was kind of mind-blowing for me. I'd always thought of Diana as like the graceful, media-savvy, um, you know, spurned lover who helped, you know, you know, get rid of landmines. And it, <laughs> it's kind of set a whole new tone for her that, that, that Tina, I think, carried throughout the book. Not, not a, a slash and burn of Diana's legacy, but just like a, a pretty even-handed look at like, hey, maybe she wasn't making the best choices. So do you feel like this book declares sort of authoritatively that that Diana was complicit in a in in sort of setting up the the scenario around I guess her need for attention was that complicit in ultimately what led to her death I mean you know that's tricky I think that the book sets up that she was absolutely complicit in the crazy attention complex that surrounded her yeah. And in fact, created it and stoked the fire of it. And I think it even sets up this idea that you would not have the kind of superstar celebrities of Kim Kardashian and uh, and et cetera without Diana, that she kind of ushered in this new world of media consumption. I think that's absolutely true. I think that it's probably unfair to say that, I mean, you know, and then it does set up that the press attention was crazy and certainly contributed to her death in a very literal way. And that yeah. they were actually chasing her in the tunnel. Uh, you know, I don't think it's her fault that they were driving like maniacs in Paris. Um, right. So I think, you know, I, to the extent that I think she created the attention and I think the book is very uh, fair and even handed in maybe appropriately judgy about that. Um, Maybe not judgy, but it it shows both sides of the coin. I think it's judgy. I think I I definitely yeah. I, there's a lot of times when I sense um, that there's a sort of a tisk tisk to hey Diana you sh- you know if you really didn't want this you didn't have to like kind of exit and enter through the front doors like you you could have moved around a lot more secretly and and I actually as part of the <laughs> I totally could see how you could read this book ten times because it's part of what draws you in and you're looking at it and you're like wow okay I'm it, there's an iconoclastic vision here of she was creating this culture around herself. And I had always thought of her as a victim of the culture. And literally it's with Diana, unlike any other celebrity, except for the ones who have passed, she is a victim of the culture. Like it, it you know, the, the, the craziness of, um, you know, moving away from the paparazzi definitely contributed to her death. So it's, fa- I don't know. To me, it's a fascinating sort of cautionary tale in a way. Um, it doesn't no. negate all of her legacy or anything like that, but I do, I, I do think it's, it's really interesting. And I do think she does get judgy when she's writing about it, at least to me. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's part of the appeal, right, is that she's willing to get in and dish with you and, and say catty things about people. Um, no, I think you're right. It's certainly contributed to it. I, you know, I think about this book, and I kind of think about celebrity culture at large, and I just kind of I find it amazing that more people haven't, there haven't been more tragedies of this level because right. the, the paparazzi culture is so intense and suffocating. And the book really does communicate that, um, you know, not that it was inevitable, but you understand how it happened. And it's strange that I, I think people are very lucky that it doesn't happen more often, honestly. Oh yeah. Well, the one, the one that always sticks out to me is like Britney Spears with her daughter on her lap, like driving out, yeah. of the, like driving through a crowd of people where if someone just like, you know, if she just bangs that and the airbag goes off, like the poor daughter is going to get crushed by it. You're right. I mean, it, 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 this is the type of thing that's been getting out of control. But I also find it fascinating that here's the most famous woman in the world, arguably, uh, like the world's darling. And 
this absolutely contributed to this swirl of attention contributed to her death and nothing changed and it got like a hundred times worse. So, uh, you know, it's not like this could have even prevented anything from happening. It might have just even fueled the need for it even more. Yeah, it's really sad. That's the it, the the one bummer about using this book as kind of escapism and as a way to look at, you know, in the same way that you read Us Weekly to look at pictures of the pretty people. Um, it doesn't have a happy ending, which we all know, but um, it, it really, every time I kind of, and I'll be honest, when I'm rereading, sometimes I skip the last couple chapters just because it is, it's, it's a, it's, it's very sad and it's definitely a cautionary tale and we have not learned anything and people are still, you know, I think celebrities are still very hungry or I guess thirsty would be the appropriate term for this type of fame. And then, you know, I sit there and I click through the daily mail and every single paparazzi photo and I should know better. And I don't. Um, and I think about it sometimes and then I keep clicking. So I, I don't know when we'll learn. I certainly haven't learned, so I can't uh, point the finger at anyone else. I guess. But you're right. It is a it's a really interesting take on what it what it means to be a celebrity. And I think it's a it's doubly that because you've got celebrity plus the monarchy. And the monarchy is an institution that is just totally bizarre to me in the in the best way. Uh so let's get into that here real quick. So why do you think we find the royals so fascinating? Well, I think it is a little bit of it is that us weekly kind of stars. They're just like us and they, they got married and then they had breakfast or whatever. Um, It's just kind of, we watch other people and I guess we are also just interested in other people's sex lives, which is what all celebrity gossip boils down to, you know, who is sleeping with who. Yeah. Um, But the, the thing about the Royals is that it is, that's appealing to me is how incredibly low stakes it is at this point. Um, they have no jobs. They have nothing to do. And it's, it's almost like reading a Jane Austen novel. It's so far from reality or how the world works anywhere else that I can't believe it's real. Um, and so it's just, it's very soothing. Cause I'm just like, well, this has nothing to do with my life. And they're either gonna, she's going to pick the long dress or the short dress to wear. And maybe the dress will fly up and maybe it won't. And that's really all we have to worry about for a day of the life of the Royals. I don't know whether that's universal, but that's what I think. Do you think their marriage ever stood a chance? No, of course not. This is what's so crazy. I was rereading this the other night because I knew we were doing this podcast and I want to be prepared. And I read a sentence that I trip over every single time, which is from the day that they met until the day they got married, Prince Charles and Princess Diana were together. They met a total of 13 times. Right. Crazy. 13 times. I still can't get over that. Also, she was 20 years old and she'd met the dude 13 times. I mean, that's crazy. You can't get married that way. I was also fascinated by the number of, so he went out and sowed his wild or his, you know, whatever, what's the, sow your wild oats or whatever. Yeah. Um, so many oats. Yeah. So he, he's out there having a good time. And yet to counter that, they want to have the chaste virgin, you know, princess. So that's how Diana became the, the target of his affection. I had no idea that he dated her older sister. Ah, oh, yeah. That's how they met. It's so crazy. Also, it's just, but not to, get too blunt here but she was the only virgin left she was the only virgin they could find <laughs> but that's, it's insane no that but didn't that just fracture because they talked about that the older sister 
who had been deemed unsuitable to a certain degree. Do you remember? Oh, of course you remember. Why was, why was she kind of tossed aside? Well, because she talked to the press. That was oh, one of the right. main problems. I think possibly they had, the book never really gets into whether she and Prince Charles had sex. It seems like he sort of expected that for most people, but yeah. the main problem was that she gave an interview about their relationship and then uh, she was just frozen out. And then, and then they found Diana, who was just waiting around. Well, maybe the problem was that she was into other positions that weren't missionary in the dark. Tita <laughs> chronicles that Prince Charles, who I want to talk more about in a second, because I just can't stand that guy. He, um, so he's only into missionary sex. He's, only in, he, he's like this shy. I think her exact line is, because like, Camilla Parker Bowles is, is teach, has to like teach him. Like, you, it's like a rocking horse. And then Tina has this great line where she's like, there you go with British male royals, like never out of the nursery, <laughs> which I yes. instantly was like, Incredible. oh, burn, like perfect. Like for all, like you go back a hundred, a hundred years and it's just like wimp, <laughs> wimpy guy after wimpy guy that can't stand up to his father. I mean, go back to, you know, Edward Longshanks. It's just the same story all the time. It drives me crazy. Yeah, it's incredible. But this, the sex stuff is really, I mean, it's amazing. I want to believe Tina on all of that. Uh, and so I'm going to, we're just going to pretend that it's all true. Yes. Uh, but the other thing that she does point out that's sort of sad is, well, if you have a dude who, she says in the book that Prince Charles prefers missionary, doesn't really know how to have sex, and so he likes women like Camilla Parker Bowles, who can teach him to be more adventurous. So if you have a dude who's boring in the sack and a woman who's never had sex before, like, obviously, their marriage is not going to go well. <laughs> right. It's never going to work out. It was really stacked against them from the start. It's pretty sad. Who do you blame more for the marriage so quickly eroding. Do you blame the monarchy or Camilla? The monarchy. Yeah. It's, you know, I I, I think that I, as much as everyone else, have been kind of won over by Camilla um, just sticking around for so long. And, you know, I think they've been married for 10 years now. And it's a nice story, like, that they weren't allowed to be together and they were finally able to have a rewarding relationship. I'm in favor of rewarding relationships. So I, I sort of have a soft spot for her at this point because what else was she supposed to do? Um, and the book really does make the case that he is just desperate for her. Yeah. Uh, absolutely desperate. So it's not, I don't know. I'm not in favor of blaming the other woman. It's clearly a little bit his fault. It's more his fault than her fault, I would say. That's... And then I think... Oh, go ahead. Just the unrealistic expectations of how on earth is a marriage between a 19-year-old virgin and Prince Charles supposed to work? I don't get it. Yeah. No shots to I mean, Live your best life. But, you know, in this situation. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, the one thing I'll... Let's, get in, let's go ahead and get into Camilla right now. So for our listeners, Camilla Parker Bowles, um, yeah. his longtime mistress, going way back to the early 70s, they met, they had a fling. But this is where the other woman... Versus like true love argument, I have a hard time with. So the the book says that they they met and they had a, a really great fling, and then Charles had to. I don't know, was he leaving for military duty? Did he do a tour in the navy? Is that right? Yeah, he was on a boat for okay. for like most of the year, I think. So instead of waiting for the Prince of Wales to come back, a man you're going to spend the rest of your life with, off and on. And and be deemed a true love. She goes ahead and gets married to somebody else, and then decides yeah. to sort of keep and string him along. And that's the where it breaks that this narrative of like they were star-crossed lovers. They were only star-crossed because they chose 
to not be with each other. And specifically because she chose not to wait around for him. At least that's my take. Am I being too harsh on her? No, I, I mean, you make a really good point. And I'm vivid. I'm trying not to quote the book verbatim, but I do remember the passage. Tina Brown is like, I just, for my money, I think that her first husband, Andrew Parker Bowles, was the love of her life. Um, yes, that's right. And so it's a little harsh, but you have to see it from her perspective, which is that one, the guy's gone for eight months. Two, she's really in love with this other dude. Three, who in their right mind would actually want to be queen, which is sort of a loaded thing that we could talk about with Diana. Like, it does seem pretty crazy to marry into the royal family. The houses are very nice, but it's it's an like extremely limiting lifestyle um, and not something that I think most people would take on for themselves. And then also I would just say this, is that I think she got married for the first time when she was 25. Everyone under 30 is pretty stupid when it comes to relationships. And I do think that there are things that you figure out <laughs> later in your life of what you want out of a marriage that maybe you don't know when you're, say, 19, like Princess Diana, or 25, like Camilla Parker Bowles. Um, and so maybe I like to think that maybe they learn some things about what they want out of a marriage and a relationship. Um that brought them back to each other. I don't think that that's like the most out of the world belief. And it's hard to blame them for not knowing at 25. I don't blame anyone for anything they did at age 25. Yeah. I mean, it was, I totally see where you're coming from. I guess part of me thinks it was arrogance. Like there's this whole narrative around royalty going back through Victorian times when, you know, they talk a lot about, um, uh, you know, just it was very common for people to be screwing around on each other within the these the proper social circles. And it was just sort of an understood thing that polite society let it happen, but didn't really talk about it. You never aired your laundry or whatever. But I guess for me, where everything kind of breaks down is if she just wanted to have fun with him, but didn't want to commit, didn't want to be queen, then just let it go. Like just when when he gets married, just like disappear. You had your fun or be way more discreet about it. But they never it just seemed like they it really just seemed like what he wanted was a publicly facing arrangement and for Diana to be like cool you could really be married to Cam to Camilla and right. this to me the the narrative of Diana that I always have embraced and I I still do even despite this having a more nuanced portrait of her is of a woman who was willing to stand up and decide the the social the social order in Britain is not for me I want to be in a marriage that works. And when this is not working for me, I want to have the right to walk away with dignity, not get trashed on the way out the door. Yeah, I would buy that as well. I mean, she got a really raw deal. It was really unfair and really cruel. And I think that she was alone um, and struggling with a lot of issues. Um, like bulimia? You know, in her, I mean, brutal stuff. Yeah, she had a lot of mental health issues. Like her family wasn't great. She just didn't have anyone. She was alone. It's very sad and no one helped her. And eventually she was just kind of like, okay, enough. Um, I, I think you're completely right. I, but I don't know. I don't blame Camilla for that, I guess is my point. I definitely blame Prince Charles for it. I definitely blame the monarchy. And I also think you make a good point that some of it is just social expectations and what people do and what is, um, what's accepted and she wasn't having any of that uh which i respect her for plus prince charles was just a, such a weenie i think we can both he's, agree. A weenie. <laughs> he's a total weenie i mean all the stuff about uh, like his valet had to 
open up his curtains and draw his bath. And I wrote that comment down. And the first in my notes, it says, does this guy seriously just take a bath every day? Like in the 1980s, <laughs> he's not taking a shower. He's like, draw my bath. Like you do not get clean in a bath. Like, why would he do that? I really don't know. There's a good, Tina Brown points out at some point that the like royal family is at least kind of 30 years behind. Um, yeah. Yeah kind of modern life, at least, although at this point, it honestly seems like they're just 80 years behind and living in another era. Um, but yeah, he is, seems completely, completely out of it at all times. It, it, so in that capacity, I think if he had just been this dashing prince, I, I guess I guess I would say this, I think the marriage would have worked if if he had been Camilla Parker, Parker Bowles's first husband. If he had been this dashing womanizer, I think Diana might have just had to supplicate her desires and just say, well, this is who he is. And I, but we'll always kind of come back because she wants to like change him and lure him back. And maybe they would have gotten to that point where he gets it out of his system and he just becomes this sort of arranged husband. But to have to be cheated on and humiliated by a guy who looks like he's out of the Archie comics, who's got the <laughs> charisma of like an empty suit. I just think it's too much for anyone, let alone, like you said, a 19 year old, a 19 year old has no idea how to process it and is struggling with mental health issues. It's still, it's still so baffling. Um, not even, you know, I think Camilla Parker Bowles is very beautiful, but it's still so bizarre that he was the one cheating on Diana. It makes no sense. I think there's a great line where even Prince Philip, um, the the queen's husband, is just like, honestly, we did not see this coming, uh, which is incredible. Right. <laughs> They're just like, who would have thought? Yeah. I think, you know, it's really, I, I, for some reason, have softened on him as well as time has gone on. I don't know. But now I look at pictures of him and he just looks so old and he still doesn't get to be king. Um, and he has, you know, he does organic farming, uh, which is cool <laughs> now. And I'm just kind of like, oh, he seems like a kind of old wobbly guy. I guess, I guess he's fine and harmless, but yeah, he was not a good look in the eighties. He really screwed things up. I think, you know, that's the real moral of the story is that the dude always screws things up. Uh, totally touche. <laughs> also, I, I, re so I, in, in classic, uh, you know, knowing that I'm talking to someone from the ringer on this, I, I did go deep into the recesses of the internet. I read the transcript of like their, their uh, Charles and Camilla's like phone sexy talk where he starts talking oh about, he's like, it's he's like, I just want to be in your pants all the time. Maybe I'll be a tampon. And then she's like, well, you can be the whole, you can be the whole box. So that you, you know, when they're talking about like, well, then you'd have to throw me away. And then Camilla's like, well, you can be the whole box. And then Charles is like, what? Like he doesn't get it. And then she has to explain it to him. And I'm like, this is the worst sexy, like, like discussion like like foreplay talk i've ever heard in my entire life it is so mortifying that not even tina brown can bear to reprint it in full <laughs> in the book which is how you know it's really really embarrassing also a thing that i forget until i reread this book is that the way people they printed them in the newspapers but there was also like a 900 line that you could call to just listen to the tapes because it was before the internet <laughs> Oh my God! What a time! What a time! I, I mean, how much would you have spent on that nine hundred line? Oh, I, I mean, I'm I would have spent at least twenty bucks. Seems totally reasonable, right? I, think I mean, so. then you have to then you have to figure that you're like going to hold up the recorder to the phone so that you only have to pay it the once. But yeah. 
But yeah. I could just picture being like, oh, my God, you have to hear this. Okay, I'll just do it one more time. And then, you know, yeah. 10 friends later, you've spent 100 bucks that, that month on the phone bill. So let's talk about <laughs> Diana a little bit. I want to start by her hair. I think she's uh-huh. the only person. I think she's the, probably the, the most beautiful person to have ever worn, like, a Dorothy Hamill hairstyle. Because as I was, like, refreshing my memory of, like, her, her as the young Diana, I, I've, I, I, I'm still amazed at how even, even when it's just all over the place and it's, like, a really unflattering cut, um, that she still just looks gorgeous. I mean, it's, it, it's really a testament to how just naturally photogenic she was. It's just also the number of ugly dresses, like truly heinous dresses and coats and weird hats and fascinators and like the amount of plaid she had to wear. It's, it's extraordinary. And she still looks good. I mean, we have the benefit of like of of 30 years and now it looks kind of like retro and cute, but yeah, it takes a really beautiful woman to overcome like kind of the, the tartan coats that she had to wear sometimes. It's who, who do you, who would you choose? Like, if if you were gonna like rank them between like the most iconic image, of, it's kind of like the you know rating the Elvis uh, versions of him, you know, from like sure. young to like sixty eight, come back to like you know Vegas uh, soul. Right, do, right, right, right. Young? Do you like young like out of the marriage or out of like you know being married in the in you know the streets of of London, Diana? Do you like you know leaving Charles like a little bit more self assured or like bombshell out on the town 1996 diana like newly single mom like which of the styles do you think is the most iconic diana or am i missing some because you're, you're far you probably have i'm probably missing like a whole array of dianas no, no, that, no. Like, aren't that i'm not mentioning it's true and this is a really hard question i mean i think there are two photos um, that kind of make the case for 96 Diana. Though even there, I feel like it's recency bias. It's also kind of technology bias because, you know, I think there were more photos available of her and more people like following her around in 96 than there were in 81. But um, there's the minefield photo, which you alluded to uh, when she she walks through a minefield um, as part of a charity mission, not once, but twice, actually, so they could get the photo. Um, because she knew how important it would be. And then there is also, I think it's 95 or 96, there's a photo of her in a short black off-the-shoulder dress um, that is taken the same night as uh, like a Prince Charles television interview. Uh, And she knew that the interview would be happening and that he would say that he never loved her or something equally hurtful. And so she staged this whole... um, this whole kind of upstaging event and looked amazing. And I always think, and that photo got used forever. It was kind of her fuck you photo. So I think, I sort of think that those two are the together kind of the most iconic besides, I guess the wedding, which is tarnished at this point. It's hard to look at the wedding without knowing everything that's happening after the fact. Yeah. And, and the I more we... Diana, I think that, yeah, I think it's good. And I think your point about the wedding is really well taken because that was the fairy tale, right? And then to know that, like, a week later, she's a mess and realizes that her marriage is essentially a lie and that she's got a lifetime of just solitude and, and not being able to do anything. There's a really great section in the book um, that uh, Tina writes that they were hearing the national anthem being played and Charles just sort of whispers to her, oh, honey, they're playing our song. And she laughs and then he laughs. And and she talks about it as like this could have been 
them sort of forging um, their own little dynamic around the insanity of their life together. And the queen shoots right. them this look and just shuts them both down. And then for a week, it's all about breach of etiquette. And, and you just think, God damn, can't you just be human? Like, can you let them be human and create a chemistry? And I think the villain in this book is the queen mum. And to our British listeners, please don't, you know, send me hate mail. But I mean, <laughs> if they had just been able to try to find a more modern sensibility that would have worked for them, I do think maybe the marriage would have standed a, a, a slight chance of finding a groove um, as long as Charles could have kept it in his pants. Yes, I agree with you. I think, and there are a couple other moments, like he talks about a sweater that she picked out for him, and he was like, she always had such good taste about these things, and Diana taught me to do this and that. There are moments littered throughout where you're like, oh, they actually did have a connection. And if they weren't living in the 1890s in this weird, <laughs> antiquated system um, where you have like a butler pick out your shirt every day, then maybe they could have figured it out. It's really sad. I don't know why I find this book so comforting. It's really a tragedy. Because well, comforting, I, though, is a very interesting word. Like, what about this book is comforting to you? Well, I think, as you said, part of it is just that we know all the stories. Even you kind of knew the beats of what was going to happen. Um, and so it's really, it's just familiar. There aren't a lot of surprises. Um, and it is, an, until the end, kind of your traditional marriage plot, um, which it's, for me, like reading Pride and Prejudice again. Um <laughs> But with but but with more sex, which makes it funny. Um, so I, you know, I think again, like I said, when I reread it, I do kind of skip the end, um, which is some sort of kind of aversion thing that I should probably talk about in therapy or something. But I don't know. It's it's a nice, uh, soothing, low stakes fairy tale until the end, um, and I just. It kind of reread it because it's what I know. And because I do think that Tina Brown is so engaging in writing about it. Well, Amanda, uh, you know how the queen mother feels about therapy. You know, she's no confidence. I know, I know, I know, it's true. <laughs> That's the other thing that I think I can't get over is, uh, you know, um, full disclosure, my mother suffered depression in the 80s. And um, that was a time when it was very difficult uh, to talk about it openly still. I mean, we think of our the 80s as being a progressive time, but um, a lot of these things were still handled behind closed doors, but, you know, to not handle it at all or to handle it in like, you know, just these suck it up or go to this random person who's not really going to help you, but they're going to help you in a, in a controlled way that minimizes risk. It's like your whole mental health being steered by PR advisors. I mean, it's just crazy right. talk. And, you know, they talk, they say at some point that once Diana actually did start talking about her struggle with bulimia, um, that it became a thing that the, the diagnoses went up and people actually started talking about their problems and kind of mothers were able to like understand what their daughters were going through and that just the talking about it and her ability to talk about it made a huge difference in the lives of all these other people. So clearly not talking about it was not helping anyone, um, but that was their strategy. It still kind of is their strategy, I think. Let's transition a little bit to the, the, the breakup and then to Diana's post-marriage um, uh, situation. Who's responsible for how nasty and how public uh, the divorce got and, and, and the role the media played in it? Do, do, you, do you hold one party or the other party more responsible for that? She is definitely responsible for that, 100%. <laughs> um, Why do you say that? 
sort of well, I think you know the main reason is that she cooperated in this book um that Andrew Morton wrote, uh, and she actually just sat and gave interviews um and had a whole book written about how miserable she was and everything that had gone wrong uh she didn't take credit for it, she couldn't uh while she was alive um but you know it, the book explains that if you read the newspapers and you knew what was if you kind of read between the lines, it was very clear that this was a book that had been endorsed by Diana, which is just not something you do in the royal family. You don't snitch. Um, and that was kind of the final straw, I think, for uh, Prince Charles and the royal family. That was when they kind of gave in and were like, okay, well, you're not going to play along. We just have to, we have to get rid of this person and go through with the divorce. And I think that actually was her end game. She wanted out. Um, but she started it. She leaked all the things. She made it really nasty. She made it extremely personal. Um, and then I think as far as the Royal family concerned, it was just fighting fire with fire, I guess. So the, the interviews that she did like on Panorama and Tina talks about how there was no coming back from that. She looked terrible. I, I was watching that one earlier today. Um, and I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, I guess that we have the hindsight of all these years. And she was criticized for just looking like this sad, doughy-eyed, um, you know, victim of, of, of circumstance versus the strong Diana that everyone had really loved and, and America's or the world's princess. What's your take on, on those interviews? Because she did another one, too. The name escapes me, although luckily you're a, a human encyclopedia of Princess Di News, so you'll probably remember. Because she, she famously did two interviews, right? Like right around the same time? Well, I think it was the Andrew Morton book. Oh, it was the book uh, and then the then the TV. It was the book, and then she was granted a divorce, or I think she was granted a separation after the after the book. Uh, and then it was the Panorama interview on camera that got her the clearance for the final divorce. Um, the Panorama interview, it, first of all, it's just it is on YouTube, and it's fascinating to go watch it because you realize that. You've seen a million pictures of Princess Diana and have almost never heard her speak. Right. So that's, it's just sort of fascinating. She's definitely much paler than she usually is. She's definitely wearing more eyeliner than she usually did. Um, She's certainly playing to the crowd. I think the Panorama interview is kind of the most transparent example of uh, Diana as a strategist. And Diana is someone who was trying to control the media and get out her own image as opposed to just the 100% victim. Uh, and you can kind of see in that interview that she has a couple answers prepared uh, and she knows the point that she's trying to get across. Um, she's very well trained in it. And, and like, cause I, my day jobs in PR. So like uh, one of the things that, that we always say to people is never say more than you need. And he seems flustered at times with how, tit for tat the interview is like she just she gets off two sentences and she stops and then he has to go to the next question he does not engage her conversationally hardly at all it's very i have a hundred questions i'm going to ask you and you get a hundred answers but you're right she's very trained you could tell she had been prepped that's why i don't have a problem with the interview like i it's not like she it's not like charles where he rambles when asked um did you cheat on her and he's like well yeah, yeah, yeah. and then get finally says yes and then the headline is you know this wiener guy <laughs> cheated on diana and he just looks like a fool she did look a little calculating but i i don't know i, I didn't have a problem with it then again it's not 1996 well, or whatever or 92 or whatever year she was way better at media than he was and it's as easy as that 
So I think, and that's, I talk about it a lot in the book of just how befuddled and frustrated Charles was and the whole family was because they didn't even know they were supposed to be playing this media game. Uh, And also, you know, they're royals, so aren't they just supposed to be loved? Uh, And that turns out to be not the case. And she knew how to, (laughs) yeah. Where do you come down on the, where do you come down on the, um, on the idea that like they had kids and I'm a child of divorce. So I know my parents did everything they could to like not fight in front of the kids while this was happening. But here you have mom and dad just like throwing punches and hail makers at each other in the press. Do do you blame them for that? Or do you say like, look, they had no choice. Like even if they were as polite as can be, you would have had, it's like Bill and Hillary stuff. Like it's not like it's not going to come out. The whole story is going to be there. I think I kept sensing and reading the book that like, they kept incorrectly thinking, oh, if I just do this one thing, that will correct the record permanently. And like they, they, they lost track of the idea that if you keep feeding the beast with new content and new sound bites, you're just going to make this worse. Yeah, I think that Diana in particular uh, was a victim of that. She did not think ahead and she did not kind of realize that it was a vicious cycle. So, you know, I go back in her defense. She got pulled into it at 19 just for dating the guy. Um, you know, it, 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 she didn't start it. And kind of once you're drawn into the cycle, it just kind of keeps going. And I guess it's also the only way to survive. I don't know. It seems like it sucks. I think the moral is definitely don't marry into the royal family. <laughs> I agree. I left thinking that too, that all these women that said no to Charles, I kept wondering, why would you say no to being the princess? other than the fact that like clearly this man was completely unlovable um, at his young age. But I, yeah, I get, maybe they're, the aristocracy was more savvy and they just realized like, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Don't bother. Yeah. I, I think that that must be it. I look at pictures of Kate Middleton all the time and I'm just, I can't believe, first of all, I just can't believe that she just became a princess in like 2012 or whatever it is. It's really crazy that you can just become a princess in this day and age. Nonsense. Um, But it seems so strange to willfully choose to just have to wear so many dumb hats all the time. And that's your whole life is just a new hat every day. And she's very good at it. And it doesn't, it's really interesting to compare her with Princess Diana because She's clearly studied and gone the opposite route. No drama, no attention, nothing of interest. Um, Just going to smile. I guess we don't really know. I guess the book teaches us that we have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. Um, But, yeah, I can't imagine choosing it. Seems horrible. All right, the the last section of the book. We're we're not going to dwell on the death. I think we we don't need to go there. As you said, sometimes you don't even want to read the last chapters. But the men in her life, at the end of her life, is it just fair to say that she had bad taste in men or is that being too simplistic? Cause I got the feeling that's what Tina is saying. Terrible taste, horrible taste <laughs> to a person. Is there one nice person who she picked? I mean, even James Hewitt, who I guess like taught her the virtues of sex, then sold her out multiple times after her death. Right. I guess there was the, there was the one surgeon uh, who she loved and who was nice to her until he dumped her. But I got, you know, almost, he didn't, he was smart enough to know that he didn't want to be a part of this life, uh, which speaks well of him, uh, even if it was mean to her. Yeah. I don't know. She had really bad taste in men. Do you agree with Tina's assessment that she was essentially looking for 
security that she was i don't i'm not going to say gold digger because it's more complicated than that but she what she wanted was a a real like kind of i guess ability to continue to do her worldwide role and the security and the comfort to fuel that uh, or do you feel like that was a that's that's you know tina being too judgmental against um against diana no, I think that's a hundred percent true. I mean, it's the she went from her father's house, and her father was an earl, and she had lived next door to the queen for her whole life. So she went from living next door to the to the queen to living with the queen. Um, had never had a job, had never lived independently. She doesn't know any other way to live. Um, so you know, you almost can't blame her for looking if it's all she knows. What else is she supposed to look for? And then there there is one line in the book that always. It makes me sad, which is that she also needed a way to provide um, security and kind of and things to do for her sons because the rest of the time her sons were with the Queen of England, right. their grandmother, and had all the palaces and outdoors and everything that the royal family could provide to them. And she didn't have anything, and she wanted she loved her kids very much. The book it makes it very clear that she was a great mother in the sense that she really cared for them and spent a lot of time with them. And so I think part of it is that she was just looking for a way to, to keep in contact with her son, which is really sad. Again, it's, this gets really sad. (laughs) It's like such a salacious book, but at the end you're like, Oh, what a downer. What kind of celebrity would she be today? That's a great, great question. I, I think that she would have remarried. I think, as you point out, like she was looking for security um, and just kind of a different way to 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 live. So I think that I like to think that she would have remarried and had a slightly more private life um, for a while anyway. And then she would probably be have some sort of extensive charity network, right? Like she'd probably be doing conferences all the time. Like there would be a Princess Diana TED tour. That's all I can imagine. Well, do you think she tipped off the cameras to catching Fergie getting her toes sucked? Yeah, I totally do. Uh, and I love I love her more for it. I was like, good, Diana, master manipulator. That's fantastic. She was really, really good at the press. I guess that's another option for her is that she could have become some sort of like crisis management strategist. What if she became Olivia Pope on Scandal? That would oh, be incredible. Man, and working in America... I, I kind of think that's a great question. Like, so where do you think she would be right now if she was alive? I think she'd probably be in the UK a fair amount of the time just because she has grand, she would have grandchildren or she does have grandchildren. Uh, I think she would jet between that and charity causes sort of Angelina Jolie style and then somewhere on the Mediterranean because she likes swimming. I can't hold that against her. I, I like to think she would have gone to America. And I think that ultimately as her as her britishness got displaced and she became a global figure that america would have always embraced her as you know one of the a-list celebrities and the, and she could have probably gotten away from the day-to-day grind of the british press i i kind of feel like she'd be oprah post show right like re- always revered sometimes like snipping about her about her business dealings whatever but like i was at essence fest working this weekend and and oprah showed up to give a a, a speech and the people were going crazy everyone's going crazy for oprah and i was kind of i remember as i was reading the book i was thinking i bet this would be diana right like she would just kind of show up a couple times a year 
you know, there'd be a natural disaster. Diana would be there raising awareness of it. Um, I don't know. I, guess, I mean, It's all speculation. But I think she would have transitioned to a very good older age celebrity. Um, because like you said, she just knew how, she knew how to move with the beats of, of media. So I completely agree. Um, which again, it makes me sad to think about. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm so turning this into such a, you're like, oh, I'll talk to anyone about my favorite book. And here we are like having a mutual cry session over like what could have been, we should might as well play the Elton John song in the background. (laughs) Oh God, that Elton John song. Um, no, it's, I mean, she definitely had talent. I think that's another sad part of the story is that she was very good at something that something was like dealing with the press, which I think can be used in constructive ways and in non-constructive ways. Um, but I, yeah, I like to think that she could have figured things out and put those skills to good use. Um, you know, instead we have this sad ending to the book. Oh, well. Yeah. Oh, well, but it's a good book. It's a fun read. I just want to thank you for coming on talking song. What's the one takeaway for people who want to read the book? Like, they all know the story, so why would you say it's worth maybe not reading 10 times, but, like, picking up? Because I do think it's a very prescient uh, look at kind of at how celebrity works and how a famous person gets made and what that takes. Uh, and it can be applied to really any famous person that you were interested in in 2016. Well, I agree. It's a great... It's a, I'm glad you introduced me to it. I'm glad you took my call and didn't think I was a weirdo for, uh, for taking you up on your offer. <laughs> um, I appreciate it. I can't believe you read a, a lot of the book. I really... <laughs> Wait, yeah, I mean, look, it was a good read. I would recommend it to all of our listeners. And I, I also recommend people check out The Ringer. Um, you know, you, your writing on there, everyone else's. It's, it's been great. Congratulations on the launch. And then they should follow you on Twitter at AK Dobbins. Amanda, thank you so much for joining Just Not Sports. Um, and you know, keep us posted how many times you get through this book. Um, every time I you do, will. every time you do it again, it's like an angel gets its wings. You know, just like keep doing it. <laughs> I'll let you know. Thanks so much for having me, um, and thank you for indulging my obsessive Princess Diana talk. All right. Recently, a popular member of the Pittsburgh Steelers, running back Le'Veon Bell, made a little bit of news with a song. Joe, let's cue it up. Focus, focus, focus. Let me worry about my focus. Focus, 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 focus. All you people, y'all just hoping. Focus, focus, that I'm not focused. Focus, yeah. focus, focus. Be mad all you want, cause I'm keeping it real. They want all my focus to be on the field. I keep all my focus on making the meals. I pay for a check and don't look at the bill. I ran out the section, I rockin' the chain. That, my friends, allegedly is Le'Veon Bell negotiating with the Pittsburgh Steelers in his latest track, Focus, which he released online. In it, he's talking about needing a $15 million a year. Later, when questioned about it on Twitter, he <laughs> he came very strong and said, I mean, every lyric. We think it's a hallmark moment in sports. But also, there's beyond the immediate headlines, Le'Veon Bell has been releasing music on SoundCloud and online um, for quite some time. So today, we thought we'd break down his rap aspirations, his musical style. His distraction. His his distractions. Mm, his can, yes. his canon of work. Well, he's embracing the distractions in the title. In the lyrics, yeah. I mean, he's basically saying, "Don't, don't question me here." <laughs> well, true. First things first, as we get into this, 
His name, his rap name seems to be Juice. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't I I don't want to have to inform him. <laughs> Juice has word. already been taken by another well-known football player. <laughs> the, Juice as a rap name is problematic for a football player, for running back, for a number of reasons. <laughs> yeah, for a number all of the reasons. names you could pick. <laughs> yeah. On his SoundCloud, his profile avatar, and I know this well because we got Just Not Sports on a variety of platforms right away. We <laughs> work in social media, I know the game. Yeah. Um, but uh, Facebook. Someone else had grabbed Juice, and, and so Le'Veon <laughs> on SoundCloud is Juice uh, underscore. <laughs> Just underscore. It's got like, like not juice even with one underscore. Or yeah, like just one underscore. Just like a little hanger. Underscore. On. Except perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's let's start with this, Adam. What? How would you describe his style? It's trap music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it like explain. Break that down for Joe. Well, <laughs> for Joe's benefit, uh, please. Wikipedia can probably define it better than I can, but it, it more based on lyrical content than production or instrumentals um the 808 Mm -hmm. drum machine heavy use of that um i think that sums it up and with and i think most importantly it's what would seem to be a southern influence even though he's from ohio right gareth did you agree with that yeah i actually had to learn about i I decided i was going to get into new rap about a year or so ago there's actually some very like rap is such a young medium it's hard to stay current with because the releases come hot and heavy uh young meaning it's a young person it's always young you know it's youth music you know like anytime you get too many people back in my day with rap and your day was like five years ago right 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 all of us some of us in this room have been alive as long as rap has been alive right right uh but basically with Bobby Schmurda a couple of years ago, somebody played it for me and I loved the beat and got into it. And so then I was like, what is this trap music you speak of? And I sounded old. But yeah, so based off my sort of rudimentary knowledge of it, I would agree with that. It also seems to be like, um, I feel like there's less choruses in rap music than there used to be. Yeah, And there's just a lot more verse, rhyming, get to a hook or something like that. And you don't have the R&B girl singing right, the hook anymore. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You so. don't have, like, heavy D with in the background is, like, a dude screaming at the top of his lungs, like, what are we going to do? <laughs> like, for eight straight minutes. Right, right. <laughs> it's also slower. You can kind of feel the influence of downers yeah. in rap music. <laughs> yes. like, this is a, you would drink purple drink yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah, Bell's yeah. album. I was going to say that because I was really reminded of um, – it reminded me a little bit of Three Six Mafia, and like I remember hearing that, like just that murky sound, that sort of like lackadaisical yeah. sound, where it's all kind of bleeding together. I, I describe it as like Thanksgiving dinner when it's hurled on the plate, <laughs> and it's just kind of like it tastes great, kind of like mixed yeah. together in certain in a certain way, but like definitely it's a beautiful metaphor. For you're gonna get the cranberry <laughs> sauce dipping into like the cheesy potatoes and stuff. That is a very Bradberg description. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but other groups like UGK. Um, well, a lot of that Houston chopped and screwed stuff, chopped right? Chopped and screwed, exactly. Yeah. I feel Spruce like Joe's them. about to go to sleep. He's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just absorbing. I'm like a sponge. <laughs> but then, like, so trap music in the last couple of years, what was it, like, Fetty and... It's terrible. He Some is? No, I, a lot of it is hard to listen, for me to listen to for an extended amount of time. Yeah, I don't know how you well, listen to it. And it's singles. It, to me, it's like true. great single music. Yeah, it's part of a playlist. You don't want the whole absolute, album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now this is defined by Juice. 
who I'm just going to go ahead and say it. The song Focus is a top five athlete rap song ever. Well, so here's my question. If he's trying to negotiate through a rap song, does this mean that he's going to try to get Ma uh, Master P to be his agent? Because Ricky oh. Williams ever going to do that. Another <laughs> running back knows how well that worked out and would probably advise against. So uh, He should definitely do that. And look, we talk all the time about... He'll get, Master P would get him $15 million a year. Heavily incentive. By the way, can we just talk, uh, no, bleeding into sports a little bit, Adrian Peterson Careful. makes $15 million a year, or $14 million a year. Really, Le'Veon Bell, $15 a year? You got to get it now. He's coming off a knee injury, and they were... Exactly. They were offense crapped out for a lot of part without him. I mean, get the money. Look, they're not going to pay. The Steelers never pony up for that type of a contract anyway. But I think I think it speaks to the 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 evolution of the business when we talk, start to think about how I would say most contracts will now be negotiated um, through rap beefs, including <laughs> like maybe collective bargaining agreements. Like this is how this is how we should do it. Union, union, union. Yeah. Well, okay. So will a guy like Eric Decker start negotiating through country songs? Ooh. Wanna, no, no, I seven think million dollar pickup. Country yeah. songs, <laughs> no, country songs need I to be like truck nuts, gold plated. <laughs> no, country songs need to be like when you'd get the bad deal, and you're like, <laughs> they took away my option year. <laughs> you know, just like that. And now she's right, gone. So Gareth, girl got out of my truck. Gareth and I had a conversation <laughs> offline, uh, and. Offline's a marketing term. I was going to say, what does that mean? <laughs> Offline. Um, uh, lots off of marketing air. terms. In person? <laughs> yeah, off air. Uh, we, our conversation. In we the green made, room. <laughs> we majored in rap, but we minored in this. Like, uh, marketing. Let's leverage some things. So, so. Gareth, uh, we talked about. Low-hanging fruit here. Because he's thrown down the gauntlet for. And we're, I want to talk more about his song and more about his career in a second. But because he's thrown down the gauntlet to the Steelers via rap song, they are obligated to. In, in you know what in rap parlance par, parlance they are obligated now to hit back respond with a remix mm, right yeah well i you know it's funny i know uh my dude huggy bear used to work for the sealers so we have some moles within the sealer organization and he was able to secretly record dan rooney's response <laughs> to Le'Veon bell if you guys want to take a listen I'm, let's check it out <laughs> Le'Veon, sit down. I know you've been running all day, but your focus seems to have wandered far and away. I know what you're after. We hear you loud and clear. Contract frustrations are nothing new here. While you've spent your summer in the so-called lab, we wish you'd been more focused on your rehab, your body, your vision, this team, our mission. You see your number is 15. We're more worried about seven. Trophies in the case out front because we got to match the Penguins. Don't forget, this is the city of black and yellow. From Sid the Kid to Wiz Khalifa, Franco Harris, and a man named Roberto. We'll pay you when your deal is up. You know that's our style. You want to see green? I've seen it all in my days. From the Alleghenies to the Emerald Isle. So focus on your game, your knee, and the upcoming season. You get the yards, you run like hell, and to pay you, we'll find a reason. Rooney out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, first of all, amazing. Good job. Awesome. Good job. Um, Huggy Bear, in air quotes, uh, <laughs> yeah. Gareth. A uh, couple things. Um, was that the first rap song that name checks the NHL? <laughs> like, I think ever. Okay. Second, you did that thing white guys do when you like so desperately want to rap it, but then you probably don't feel like it's gonna come across. Yeah, wrong. no, I, so I just definitely made it more like, like as poetry. It, as I was writing this, I was like, this is going to sound like 
The, mm. the problem to me is like, I love rap music. And so much rap parody over the years. This is where I think you have to give credit to the Lonely Island because they can rap. So much rap parody over the years has been like, yo, wiki wiki, word, come to hickey. You know? And like, yeah. It's just really bad music, period, and shows no actual respect for the art form. I so. mean, we're in New York. You couldn't have found some Robitussin and some Shasta grape soda. <laughs> you would have made it so much better. He's got Fair more enough. of a staccato, energetic <laughs> yeah. style. I don't know, Joe, how'd you think he did? I think you did great. Yeah, I love. I tried it. to switch so up the flow it. a little bit in there. Joe, you know? you're you're a mediator with the NFL. Like, what where do you stand on this contract? That's a good question. We'll uh, we'll get a response to you in 48 hours <laughs> via rep. Yes. I probably I probably cut in around 10 and uh, and give give him a team option <laughs> team we option could, third year. You know, Adam brings up a good point. We could probably go find somebody on the corner selling original music, <laughs> original music. Who wants yeah. it? Come on, man, take my yeah, mixtape. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Small serious, donation, ten dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In all seriousness. I know we're joking about contract negotiations via rap, but isn't what like Conor McGregor did via Twitter, like isn't new media yes, and like al- exactly alternative right. ways of interacting with your fan base or like the powers your that owner. be, your owner or whomever, isn't that actually going to become a thing? Like I'd rather tweeting this, out, I'm retiring because I want a bigger pay cut at whatever. Like I'd rather this have become a, a, thing. a forum that seems authentic, like this rap song, than. I won't name any names, but some of the player-owned websites out there who have, have a, present a very controlled player <laughs> statement. Kevin Durant, Players Tribune. All right. What was that? Let's give it. I, we're not going down the Durant water hole or, or rabbit hole here. We're not going down the Unless Durant water rabbit hole. Unless we get into Thunderstruck 2, the Warriors. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they can't, they can't do Thunderstruck yeah. 2 Next episode. With, the, with the new teaming. I want to get back to focus here for a second because I think this is one of the most important athlete rap songs ever written. The the whole thing about don't like don't you worry about my focus. Let me let me worry about my focus. You know, they want me to focus on the football field. This is all we stand for on this. He's exactly right. Iman Shumpert has a similar song, right? Or no, Iman Shumpert did an essay about it. I don't know if he's really rapped about it. This is like laying it all on the table. Like, I'm gonna write raps, I'm gonna make music. I like doing this. Get off my back about it. I love it. And, now, no, and I no, also absolutely. love when he's, Joe, look, we're going to play this. And he's like, don't you worry about my focus. Focus, focus, focus. Don't you worry about my focus. Focus, 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 focus. Let me worry about my focus. Yeah, guys, come on. I'm with him. Brad Burke actually said something to the, like, if this show came out of a lot of conversations over the years between the people in this room, Brad did say this years ago when Randy Moss came out and said he takes plays off. Brad was like, somebody at work came up to me and they're like, can you believe Randy Moss said that he takes plays off? And Brad was like, I don't know, man. You got ESPN.com on your computer right now. You, right. Are you going hard 24-7 at the office? You know, no. like, who are you to judge? Yeah, and it's like, totally fair. I, well, like his no, other- I have this Excel, this expense report, and only this expense report in front of me, and that's it. Full like, tilt, full time on my Excel sheet. Focus is fascinating, too, because he drops, like, Leonard Forsett. Like, did you hear that? Yeah, he's still in college. Yeah, yeah he's still got, and he's like, like he's probably gonna get drafted by like <laughs> one of these teams. It's, it's the whole thing is fascinating. But his album, he put on an album last year. Um, we mean album. In the, the interview, sense of the, the word. mixtape. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. okay, we talk about this. Is it yeah. is it a mixtape or is it an album? I said mixtape. 
Can we explain the difference? Is it getting back to your point well, about? Well, it's a tough thing to define. Uh, I, I think it has to do with really the level of production at yeah. this point. It's one of these like singles versus like running the whole 50 album situation. Cent was putting out mixtapes that were done with very minimalist. It's more like a guy rapping over a beat yeah. to me. Or their studio production with yeah. these guy oh, tracks yeah, yeah, though yeah. that have the like first flight. You know, it's got a guitar. Joe, play a clip of this. They be like Riggs, why you loving like that? And when I leave, they was calling me back. My first flight out of the first flight out of the city. If I told you I was packing a gun, would you believe me? Good. I wouldn't either. Mama packing my clothes and forgot. Damn, I couldn't believe it. Now I'm being searched. They saying that it's standard procedure. And I'm nervous, body shaking like I'm having a seizure. Last thing in the airport you want to see is them people whose bus fail ain't even fail. And not the one that has it's got a guitar, guys. It do- it's hot. Well, it's got a guitar. It's hot. Never like, mind, then it's It was album. my first flight out of the city. It was my first flight out of the city. It, do not be alarmed. That was not Le'Veon in the room. I just... Oh, what's up, Le'Veon? Same, oh. same cadence. I mean, look, I think... If Le'Veon was in the hotel room next door right now, he'd be like, I like- who are these motherfuckers? <laughs> that song, Jackie Chan of his... And I'd be like, a- dude, you say the Sheridan on Canal? We're at the, we're at the penthouse of <laughs> yeah. the Trump. I don't know what you're talking about. He's got about. that song, Jackie Chan, where it's like, she wants to kick it, Jackie Chan. I, I think these are, like, funny lyrics. They're not bad. It is one of those things, and Brad, you are, you are the best at this, at removing your bias when it comes to athlete rap, that... Listening to it for the product that it is and not thinking, oh, an athlete is doing this rap. I went and listened to coming But no, no, that, wait, real quick. That's I listened not right. to uh, Primetime last night. Yeah. It's really not as bad as I thought. If you had told, if you had not told me that Focus was an NFL running back, yeah. I'd probably listen to it twice. Like, You're I'd right. be like, oh, I'd listen to this again. If, if it came out on, on the mix, radio exactly. while you were driving, you'd be yeah. like, all right, I'll le- I'll I'll leave this on the stage. And there's so many athletic metaphors in rap over the years. Like we've discussed some of them on the show. That even if you're like AP gets 14, I want 15. You'd have like, no idea. Yeah, I could think, oh, he's it's trap music, and he's talking about selling drugs, and he wants to make 15 million dollars mm-hmm. a year. You know, like yeah. it it would fit in that totally. I, real quick though, I think you misread my position on this stuff. I I have like it's kind of like a 3D painting when you have to have like deep focus to see it like i'm hyper focused on the fact that it's an athlete rapping which is why i i love it for what it is because as we've talked about these guys have to operate on a handicap Mm -hmm. he's already working out multiple times a day probably doing like you know branded appearances this is like a late night studio session for him you know it's not three months in the studio so for him to come out with anything that's remotely competent is a huge a huge bonus for him also, he says this is all freestyle. I no. maybe don't believe that. <laughs> right, 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 right. But he says it's all freestyle. Yeah. And if it is, that's great. Good for him. No, it's not freestyle. <laughs> he is right. I mean, it's unbelievable. If it is freestyle, then this is the most unbelievable right, album right, ever. Right. He's writing. So this is a top five athlete rap song. Yeah, all the, time. the greatest athlete rap song is Check It by Dana Barrows. <laughs> I think that's it, undisputed. It it's a, Adam and I had that conversation uh-huh. years ago where I was like, who do you think is the best athlete rapper? And instantly all I got was an email back with a link. And I was like, you know it's a good one. No explanation needed. I clicked it and I was like, ah, Dana <laughs> Barrows. Love it. And then after that, um, 
I think it's uh, Shaq. I know I got skills. I know Jensen um, Jensen Carp talked about how Shaq no hooks uh, with Method Man, where they, they're like, this song doesn't need no hook or whatever. Uh, what's the song? I mean, we go on and on about Shaq raps. The song where he talks about not having a father. The title is not the best. We'll pull it up. Joe, play that right now. All right. The magic of production. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I didn't hear it. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> full disclosure. Didn't he have a father? Uh, he had an adopted. His real no. He was adopted oh, okay. by. He's an alien. Stepfather. Yeah. yeah. So okay, but I would put I would put focus in yeah, my top five because I think that it's already. I think it's. That's I think what I'm wondering. Do you think it's That's a watershed moment by using athlete rap? To negotiate a platform. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's a and meta so rumination what, on like, yeah. it's like, I'm going to do this because I love doing it. And I'm going to tell you I love doing it by doing it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mind that's what most blown. I, but most of rap is <laughs> I am the greatest rapper alive and I'm going to rap about being the greatest Great. rapper alive. I mean, yeah. there's been a lot of that over the last 40 years. <laughs> a lot. It would be a prevailing theme, I would say, yeah, exactly. in the in the genre. All right, so long story short, three of us, you I'm a big fan of this. You guys are Adam and Gareth uh, are fence. okay. It needs another listen. Joe hates Le'Veon Bell and will be releasing a rap beef song <laughs> as a retort <laughs> next week. That'd yeah, I expect crazy. to see it out soon. <laughs> this fall, my mixtape is in the store shelves. Right, well, dropping. Uh, I can't tell you that yet. On store shelves? Yeah, man. <laughs> Print CDs, media, my baby. God. And right no, now, digital's dead. Right now. 40-year-old millennial. <laughs> digital's <laughs> dead. <laughs> Digital, on that note. I'm all about offline. On that, on that note, so is this segment. Let's uh, let's have Le'Veon carry us out to the break. We'll be right back. Be a high, kill the Leon with me. That's my fate. Just pretend that you missed my first flight out of the city. First flight out of the city. It was my first flight out of the city. When I leave, she keep calling me back. I took a flight out of town, now she missing my ass. Yeah, my first flight out of the city. First flight out of the city. First flight out of the city. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you didn't like what you hear, just remember what Malcolm Jenkins said about bow ties on this very podcast. The beauty, my friends, is in the imperfection. Thank you to all of our listeners. In the words of Chris Cluey, you are the beautiful and unique Sparkle Ponies. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at Just Not Sports. Email us tips, thoughts, or topics, justnotsports at gmail.com. And go find something to distract yourself, a la Le'Veon Bell talking about distractions. As such, we're going to jump into a segment we introduced a few weeks ago uh, by Mr. Gareth Hughes, talking about the things that are currently distracting us. So, guys, let's go around. Let's talk about one thing that you've been into. Why is Adam laughing at me already? Oh, mine's so terrible. You guys. Well, then start it. Let me me go first, actually, because we just talked about rap music and Le'Veon Bell. So mine is a recommendation in that vein. Uh, the documentary Stretch and Bobito Radio That Changed Lives. Uh, you can find it online. It's been showing on Showtime. It is about the Stretch and Bobito radio show that took place on 88.9 or 89 Tech 9 on uh, Columbia University Radio in the 90s here in New York City. Uh, this is a good distraction as we're recording in New York. Bobito Garcia? Bobito Garcia, yeah. The... 
DJ uh, Cucumber Slice, Cool Bob Love. He started Fondlem Records before that. He and Stretch Armstrong had a radio show that gave rise to such luminaries as Nas, Jay-Z, the Wu-Tang Clan, Big L, Big Pun, uh, Fat Joe. This is where all these guys got... Cedric Zabalos. Yeah, this is where all these guys got hurt for the first time. It was a fascinating documentary and a great look at the hip-hop scene in New York late 80s through the 90s that's amazing so, well Bita garcia can, can play a little ball too. he can he he is an inspirational figure bobito consider yourself hammered on this show permanent hammer but yeah <laughs> stretch and bobito radio that changed lives highly recommended amazing oh. uh adam yours oh man uh i like to recommend product services uh books and albums as well but there is a Oh, this is the most anti-hip-hop thing ever. <laughs> so embarrassed to say it, but I'm excited about it. There's an app called Expensify. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this in action last night. I'm the worst at expense reports. Lay it on me. Perfect. So Expensify, you take a picture of your receipt, mm-hmm. uh, and it will scan it, smart scanning, mm-hmm. put the vendor name, company name, uh, the total and send it instantly to an expense report that you can organize, add descriptions, and then send it immediately to your admin. So I crumble up my receipts and shove them in my wallet to be done two months later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Brad saw last night as we were at dinner, as soon as the check came, I couldn't wait to get out, (laughs) Expensify, take a picture, uh, and receipt done, already sent back to the office. Man, I, I... Expense reports have come up with my therapist because I lose sleep over them. Me like, too. Yeah. We should so, talk about this. Yeah. Man, I thought my PDF scanner was like an awesome thing. <laughs> nice. It just finishes it for you. Uh, they sent me two free t-shirts. I feel <laughs> obligated to plug <laughs> them. Yeah, it's, it says burn your receipts. It's the coolest yeah, that's oh, awesome. Damn. <laughs> I don't even know how to work the voicemail on my phone, just FYI. Uh, Joe, what do you want to do? Uh, on the flight here from Chicago, I watched a movie. The movie was called Room. I don't know if you guys have seen this movie. I know Adam has. Um, I read the was, book. Yeah, Gareth can probably tell us about the book. It was very good. And um, I like it when movies make you think differently about a subject that you think you're maybe familiar with. It was just interesting seeing sort of um, seeing seeing someone who has been held captive. Um, the, the whole the segment, I don't know if you've seen the movie when she's being interviewed and you hearing the lawyer talk about like, there's going to be expenses. One primetime interview could really help us cover this. It's just like this, seeing them go through this experience and then seeing what their lives are like after. Oh, so hard to watch. I cried on the plane. It's a tough read too, but I, I highly it. recommend it. You could read it in about two days. It goes fast. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah it I'm was, uh, yeah, it was great. Right. I would highly recommend it. Um, mine's a podcast. Per huge, <laughs> if you will. Uh, the great folks at Radiolab have a spinoff, I think, called More Perfect. And it's all about stories from the Supreme Court. So Supreme mm. Court is a really interesting political hot button this year, especially since <clears throat> apparently it's cool just to not fill <laughs> empty seats on it for a year. Well, I, even numbers are good for breaking ties. <laughs> if I know <laughs> yeah. one thing from sports. Yeah. Like, oh, and yeah. I mean, look, it's not really fair to uh, uh, the next president to only you know allow like one one eighth or really one fourth of a, of a sitting president's term to just be now declared completely vacant. Um, I'm going to cut that. Anyway, it, it's really interesting stories about the Supreme court, uh, interesting cases, um, interesting nuances around the justices. I recommend it. And it's got that great radio lab production. Um, 
Joe, hint. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Damn, um, son. I thought I was being mean for all the life is good jokes. So. Drop the mic. So that's our show. Um, also, I- follow up on a previous distraction you had, keeping it 1600. It's great. Yeah, it is really good. Good podcast. I love it. Um, all right, so we're going to close out with some shout-outs. I'll shout-out Amanda Dobbins for coming to the show, talking about Princess Diamond. Let's shout-out Tina Brown. Um, anyone has got any shout-outs? No. We City of New York, where we're recording City this thing. Oh, oh, yeah. Zoo York. They call that Zoo York here, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, got shout-outs for us? Sarah Spain. Thanks for coming to the Cleos with yeah. us. Yeah. Amen. And Julie. And Julie DeCaro. Julie, sorry missed. you couldn't be. I know. Very much missed at the Cleos. down in Chicago. Uh, well, as usual, uh, to my extended family, I would just like to say... Uh, shout out to my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, the legend, Little Swanee, Meech, Ron Mack, and my cousin by the same name, my other cousin Ron. I love those guys. Thank you guys for all you do every week. Your hard work inspires us all. And uh, any mortal words of Shaquille O'Neal? Booty rappers? Booty rappers? Stay booty. Stay booty. You can't mess with the focus here. <laughs> Stay booty. <laughs> booty. Booty. Booty.